0: Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. In this episode of the SDS podcast, Same Surgeon, Different Light, we have a conversation with Dr. Joanna Chikwe. Dr. Chikwe is the founding chair of the Department of Cardiac Surgery in the Schmidt Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai. In our conversation, Dr. Chikwe Talks about growing up in Birmingham, England, being a gifted artist, immigrating to the United States, and being one of the first Black woman chairs in surgery, specifically cardiac surgery, and the challenges of leading during the COVID 19 pandemic. Hope you enjoy. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Chikwe. I want to call you Joe, if that's okay. Joe is great, yeah. Uh, welcome, uh, and thank you for joining us on on Same Surgeon, Different Light. Uh, this is our, our group that that really highlights the face of CT surgery. And um, I'm really excited to, to learn more about you. So first of all, how, how are you holding up in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Well, genuinely being in California, it doesn't feel like difficult times. So we had a sort of very slow sort of crest, not really a surge, no, nowhere really got overwhelmed. And it's really just been about figuring out how we um, do safe cardiac surgery just going through this.
0: And and how's your department holding up in regards to your team members and et cetera? You know, this could be pretty stressful.
1: Well, I think the painful piece was April where there was a sort of reaction that we had to shut down cardiac surgery. um, And we had to do a lot of advocating to try and explain um, that elective heart surgery is not the same as elective hip surgery. And we need to be able to move through this. And actually the transplant team Sort of led the way. And if we can do transplants safely, that, that gave us a groundwork for articulating how we could and should continue to do cardiac surgery safely. August was really, really busy. Sorry, July was really busy. Um, August has been a lot quieter.
0: Yeah, you bring up a good point. I think it's kind of germane in what we do. You know, there's a, a difference between elective surgery and central surgery, right? Especially on the cardiac side.
1: There, there absolutely is. And I think we were able to articulate that really well with a, a group of people across different countries and different institutions. We've written consensus sort of guidance on really how to restratify patients and how to articulate to hospital committees that are often not um, necessarily informed by cardiac specialists, how and why you need to be able to prioritize cardiac surgery in this conversation.
0: Was it's Cedar's, very much
1: the same for cancer surgery, no doubt.
0: Was Cedar sinai kind of receptive to that logic and reasoning
1: yeah they, they couldn't have been more receptive they have been i think once we got over this initial concern that things were going to look like new york and understood that it was never going to be that bad and um, that they've been very very receptive and it's really transformed how we see our patients how we interact with patients how we provide care
0: so you know you, you mentioned you know new york and, and right now you're in la so you're officially bi-coastal you're officially Hit both coasts of our country, but as, as you get as I, I might surmise from your accent, uh, you, you you hail from the United Kingdom. Uh, is that correct?
1: That's absolutely correct. I keep going west.
0: So uh, you, you did your med- medical education. Yeah, I guess keep far west, with a big ocean in between. But you did your medical education at, at University of Oxford and and uh, your uh, uh, general surgery training at Cambridge and. Uh, cardiothoracic training in in London. Did you were you born in London in England and did you grow up there?
1: Or? Yeah, so I, I was born in England in an area in the nineteen seventies that most English people would have happily driven fifty miles around to avoid. Um, it's a city called Birmingham. It's England's second city. It was sort of the industrial heartland of England um, during the Industrial Revolution. And it's got probably, at least it had then, one of the worst reputations for culture, for aesthetics, for the accent. Um, And yet it's actually a really wonderful um, place to live. Um, My parents essentially, I think, saved every penny that they had. They didn't go on sort of overseas holidays to try and live, buy a house in the best area that they could afford and and put us through a private education. Um, So, yeah, Birmingham's got a place close to my heart, but I haven't actually lived there since I was 17.
0: I see. I see. And when you went, went off to college slash med school?
1: Well, actually, I I, de- I took a little detour. So I, at the age of 17, when I finished all of my high school education, I was lucky enough to go to Italy for two years to study art. So I lived in Florence on a road called Via del Proconsolo, which is the route between the Duomo which was built in about I think 1200 to the Bargello um, which is about 1300 and got to study one of the most inspiring and exciting and frankly glamorous periods of arts politics and culture in in sort of western civilization and I got to do that for two years the first year was sort of with full parental support um, which I will ever be grateful. My parents' enthusiasm slightly dampened when I proposed sort of spending a second year there. So I, I got a variety of odd jobs to kind of fund the second year. So got acquainted with sort of Italian pizza making, horse riding, all sorts, anything that I could do to earn a living. And then um, took up my place at medical school, uh, who had also been kind enough to defer it.
0: Do you speak Italian? Uh,
1: I used to speak fluent Italian. It, it's a bit embarrassing to try it out now.
0: We're going get back on your art ability. Because I, well, I think a lot of people don't know about you uh, is that you're a gifted artist. And if anyone has- Well,
1: I think uh, gifted is somewhat overstating it, but uh, I definitely well, enjoy doodling.
0: You're, you're extremely above average to the point where it becomes gifted. So uh, uh, anyone who's looked at your, your uh, textbook that you put together would, under, would know that uh, if they understood that the majority of those illustrations would, were done by you. Uh, in your hand. Um, So that
1: textbook was uh, a sort of result of um, absolute fear of having to take a board exam. I thought that the only way I'd actually internalize all of the knowledge that I had to get through the UK boards was to write notes and that I might as well use the notes to good advantage by putting them together into a, a textbook for other people that then had to sit the board exam. And the thing that allowed me to do that was one of the things that actually motivated me to eventually the uk for a one-year training position and that was the european working time directive which meant that as surgeons instead of being able to work as many hours as we wanted to in the operating room in our training we were limited to 60 hours a week and then 48 hours a week so at one point in my training i was working a four-day week because by thursday i'd sort of worked up to the limits and you weren't allowed to come back so um that's where the book came in and the cheapest way to get it fully illustrated was to do the drawings myself
0: oh wow wow uh, we're going to get back to that. What, one thing I want to follow up. Are, are you Nigerian background? Is your family uh, Nigerian background?
1: So my father's Nigerian, and he comes from a town called Oweri, um, which I have never been to, but would very, very much love to go to. And he um, came to Britain um, with, as he says, it's um, just coins in his pockets. And a lot of ambition and training as something called a quantity surveyor, which is basically a project manager for building sites um, when he was in his 40s. And my mother uh, is English. Um, She's a Welsh woman from a coal mining village. Um, None of her family went to university. None of my father's family went to university. And they married at a time when that really rather defied convention. I would say I didn't meet any of my cousins on my mother's side because that split the family um, for about 15, 16 years. Um, and they spent an awful lot of, I think, time and energy trying to prove that um, they had made a, a great decision and that a mixed race family at a time when that wasn't at all usual was, um, you know, could be a success.
0: But it's it's a, a truly a, a sort of a vanguard uh, thing. And, uh, first for you or or being on the uh, on the vanguard is, is going to be a theme as we go through uh our conversation here um but you know it's interesting to to find out that the word on the street is that you wanted to be a cardiac surgeon when you were in high school
1: oh yeah well when i was six i we were asked what what do you want to do when you grow up and that's probably the first time i actually wrote in a school textbook i want to be a heart surgeon lord only knows why i really not wasn't a scientist, naturally. My, my strengths were always literature and art. Um, it goes against the grain. It's definitely involved um, a lot of work to try and get a grasp on the subjects that I needed to. In England to do medical school, you had to do three sciences, plus or minus maths. And again, I kind of negotiated at school so that at least one of the subjects I could do could involve art and literature because that's what I found easy, that, that's what I loved. But the nice thing about spending time in Italy doing something I was very passionate about was also confirming that that wasn't my lifetime passion. Um, that was always going to be a great hobby, but my love is medicine.
0: And then why heart surgery?
1: Well, well, <laughs> who knows? Who knows why a six year old wants to be a heart surgeon? All I know is that the first time I got to scrub in an operation, which is when I was about 15, I did a high school observation. I got to scrub on a carotid endarterectomy. I was hooked. And the first time I saw heart surgery was as a clinical student at Oxford. And it was actually David Taggart doing an aortic valve replacement on an eight-year-old lady that I'd been asked to do a critical appraisal of the literature by Dave Sackett, um, who'd come over from uh, McMaster's. And um, again, just absolutely hooked. And I think nothing that I've encountered um, since then has you have done anything but confirm my love for cardiac surgery. So it's a genuine privilege to work with and operate on the patients that we get to do with the teams that we get to do. Um, it, it's just—it's just a wonderful, wonderful occupation.
0: Wow! And then in two thousand six, somehow you found your way across the pond, so into to New York City. Um, how did how did that come about?
1: So. The this concept of limiting working hours for training in the UK filled me with this real desire to spend a really intensive time operating. One and two, I would say that in my entire UK training, I probably saw the mitral valve once and it was a mitral valve replacement. And I saw the tricuspid valve once by accident because somebody got into it um, on their way to the left atrium. So I was really keen to find a program that would just give me really dense operative experience. And I interviewed at three. I I had, I think, an interview lined up at the Cleveland Clinic, and I'd spoken to a lot of the fellows there. I interviewed at MGH, and a trainee called Annie Anyanwu, who's also from the UK, had written this very compelling description in one of the UK journals about his experience at Mount Sinai, which I hadn't heard of. But I thought reading his operative log, I would really love a piece of that. So I wrote multiple letters to Mount Sinai, all of which ended up in the trash bin of a very, very lovely administrator who I later became very um, appreciative of. And eventually, in complete frustration, I wrote to Annie and said, look, for goodness sake, can't you show my CV to somebody? I really want to come here. And luckily enough, he he showed it to David Adams, who took pity on me. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history.
0: No, I think it's uh, at Mount Sinai, Uh, you were extremely prolific in regards to your scientific investigations uh, and specifically your publications on valvular disease you know health services research and outcomes research what what brought you to that sort of area of research was that what was available to you at mount sinai or did you have a, a certain interest in that so
1: I think that's a really good question. And I think it sort of speaks to what sort of shapes your trajectory through life. And that was really almost just luck and opportunity. So I have to credit a surgeon called Farzan Sufi, who was, I think, tasked when he arrived at Mount Sinai with really trying to build up an institutional database and data set. And he really taught me the nuts and bolts of how to work with data that may not be everything that you want it to be, and how to craft a compelling, but rational manuscript. Um, And the thing that took me from just writing single institutional sort of comparative series to being able to write at a level that, you know, Jarma and Jack would be um, excited about was essentially two things. One was finding a biostatistician that would work with me for free. And Natalia Egorova. the first time I went to see her with medical students in tow, just looked at me and said in this dense Russian accent, I have worked with surgeons and medical students before is waste of my time. And it took us probably about two years to persuade her that we wouldn't be a waste of her time. And then it was working with some of the brightest um, medical students and residents that, um, I have ever worked with, way, way brighter than me. Um, the ones that stand out are um, people like Andrew Goldstone, um, Yuting Chang, who's gone to Columbia, Andrew's just um, at CHOP now. Between those guys being able to sp- spend full time in sort of research fellowships and Natalia, and suddenly understanding that there was this wealth of data out there, sort of registry data, administrative data, multi-center data, that if you understood the limitations of the data sets and you could craft questions intelligently around that, that you could really do very compelling comparative outcomes research. And once you've kind of lit that candle, once you've sort of asked a question that suddenly got an interesting answer and got traction, you sort of don't want to do anything else. And in an ideal world, what we wanted to do were clinical trials, we were quite an ambitious group. So I remember coming up with Andrew Goldstone with a sort of protocol for a randomized trial of tricuspid versus just isolated mitral bowel repair. Um, obviously that was a little bit beyond us, um, but certainly our plan B, which was using these data sets has actually yielded a wealth of um, certainly fun for me and hopefully some meaningful information.
0: And you, you bring up really important points in regards to you know, research and, and research is not just to put on your CV, but it's it's really to be immersive and understand the scientific method and the appropriate uh, uh, approach to answering a question. And, and you, you mentioned, you know, some of the, your mentees that you've uh, have uh, uh, helped guide through this process. And I've always been impressed um, seeing you at the meetings, uh, introducing your mentees and making sure that they're on the podium. Um, your, your experience uh, has been sort of a who's who of great educators. Uh, David Adams, uh, you, you mentioned David Taggart uh, in your medical school years. Um, I, I do know that uh, uh, Mahdi Yaku means quite a bit to you. Uh, and if you worked with Friedrich Moore uh, in the past, um, yet yeah, none of those individuals look like you and none of those individuals share your background, except for perhaps uh, uh, Dr. Tagger and Yakub from the United Kingdom, um, yet somehow you've been able to be successful. You were successfully mentored by them. Can you talk a little bit about what it takes to be an effective mentor and whether uh, being an effective mentor requires you to look like your mentee?
1: So I think there are two parts to this Um, and success is tied up not just with effective mentors, it's really driven by effective sponsors as well. Um, And to speak to the mentorship piece, um, the example that people set is one of the strongest um, pieces in helping People grow and succeed. So when I looked at the quality of research and reach that people like David Adams, Fazan Sufi, certainly Magdi Yaqub, um, were able to drive, you follow, you try and follow that example to the best of your ability. Um, and in my case, it's certainly far more limited than anything um, that Those individuals have achieved, but you try and follow by example. And if you're lucky, you'll find somebody that will actually sit down with you and help you craft work. And I've always felt that the most effective mentor mentee relationships were built around mutual goals and specific projects rather than let's just sit down and have a cup of tea and talk about the world. Like there is a role for that and there is a need for that, but it's been a joy mentoring medical students and residents and junior faculty through really meaningful research onto podiums and then that being the platform for them to get the residency of their dreams or the the faculty job of their dreams. The second piece of what you're talking about in terms of helping somebody's trajectory through cardiothoracic surgery is sponsorship. So if there isn't somebody that is willing to give you a chance on the podium, willing to sort of point you in the direction and put you on the editorial board, give you a chance, then all of that mentoring sort of comes to nothing, or at least it takes a much, much longer time for for things to evolve. So people like Alec Patterson that kind of took a chance on me and let me be a feature editor at Annals, I I will always remain incredibly, incredibly grateful for those kinds of opportunities too.
0: You know, uh, Adam Grant is a um, a psychologist uh, professor uh, at Wharton School of Business. He talks about the giving mentality. Uh, in regards to leadership and where uh, he studied uh, different leader phenotypes. And one of them is the giving mentality where a leader derives pleasure from helping others. And and, and you, you talk ab- about that quite a bit in, in regards to sponsorship and the need to reach out and, and, and sponsor individuals. Uh, how have you incorporated that into your new role as a department chair?
1: So I think that's absolutely front and foremost because your role as the department chair is really understanding how you can help every individual within your ambit just flourish and reach their full potential and that's not just your faculty but it extends to a very large team and you have to recognize where you have strengths so for example I find it very easy to help somebody with outcomes research, or in sort of the Mitral space, or professionally, and where you need to draw in somebody else that's got strengths that complement yours, um, that it, it's absolutely a key path, and it's probably one of the most rewarding pieces of being in a position like that.
0: Yeah, uh, one um, uh, individual once told me that being a department chair can be uh, extremely lonely. It's lonely at the lonely at the top, and you know, looking at your career, you're have a first in a lot. You're the first woman faculty at Mount Sinai. You are potentially, I think, the first cardiac surgical department chair, black woman in the country. And you have an intersection really of different points of view and perspectives. You're a woman in cardiac surgery. You're a, a person of color. You're an immigrant. Do you think about these things? Does it affect your point of view or, or add a layer of stress? Or, or how, have, how have you been able to synthesize uh, all these sort of first and, and intersections?
1: So I think that's a fascinating question. And I would say until about six months ago, it's not something I spent time thinking about. And the thing that changed six months ago is really all of the events that have gone on um, that coalesced around Black Lives Matter. And one of the reasons it changed was because when you're in a position of leadership, people, whether you like it or not, look to you to articulate concerns and solutions. And it's very difficult to do that unless you've really resolved some of your inner concerns and aspirations. I was asked and have been asked multiple times now to speak um, about racism and bias, and those are topics that I find really difficult to speak about. I think that certainly for um, many people that have experienced racism, um, it's a painful topic. It's really difficult to talk publicly about it in a way that's helpful for everybody within that conversation, but it is really, really important. Up until six months ago, all I would say is that, that combination of characteristics that you described there, probably just made me try a lot harder most of the time, um, and recognize where other people were having to try a lot harder as well, and be more willing to take a chance on people because of that.
0: It's difficult when uh, you're a leader of color, right? Because as you point out, everyone looks to you for guidance in a storm and whether it's the COVID-19 pandemic or whether it's the uh, other racial inequity and structural racism that's going on in the country and you having all the answers, but you're also navigating the the seas yourself.
1: You're absolutely right. And I am very conscious that my experience is not your experience, is not Bob Higgins' experience, is you you are not speaking for a homogenous group of people. And yet that is often the expectation when you're asked to speak um, in this area. So it's, and the other thing is the weight of the importance of it. It is just important to get this right It is important to articulate concerns for people and try and drive change that's going to be meaningful and sustained, um, not just cosmetic and and short-lived, and not for it to be an opportunity cost, not for the focus on this to detract from the focus on equally compelling and important issues. So um, yes, I haven't got a neatly packaged soundbite that I c- can offer there, um, but it isn't for want of having thought about it long and hard o- over the last few months.
0: Have you found our specialty receptive to someone like you?
1: Well, there's a question. Um, how would I know? I think our specialty is receptive to excellence. I think it's receptive to people that can articulate a goal or a vision. Um, It's receptive to success. And it's very, very natural for us to look at our leaders who are historically have been quite homogenous in appearance, and make assumptions about their backgrounds. But the value of something like this interview is it really helps you understand that we are not homogenous. There is a huge variety of different backgrounds and platforms that people have come from and to succeed in this field. So that would suggest to me that this is a specialty that also is receptive to diversity in its true form.
0: I think, you know, it's, very fascinating. Looking underneath the hood of our leaders and understanding where they're coming from, uh, and it changes your perspective in terms of decision making, directions, and 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 etc.
1: Possibly one of my favorite photos in JTCVS is of Craig Smith in his twenties up a telegraph pole. I think mounting wires. It, it, it's. We come from very, very different life experiences, all of us. Um, and it's very, very refreshing to see that um, most of us weren't born into a suit and a tie.
0: You know, talk about life experiences. You know, you talked about your time in Italy with, the, with your, your skill in art. Uh, I called it a, a gift earlier. Um, and uh, looking at your textbook, it truly is. What are you doing now uh, with your art?
1: oh that's the saddest question ever. <laughs> that's like what am i doing with like 20 years of musical training it's it, it's it's a, it, nothing like zero hopefully in about 10 years i'll find some time to sort of go back to it but right now like my almost my entire life is work and i mean that in the best possible way i i, I i'm in by i i take phone calls at five from europe ATS, whatever, East Coast. I finish here like eight in the morning. I finish here maybe eight in the evening. I go home to a lovely house, but I'm usually zonked and in bed pretty quickly. And the weekend is pretty much all editorial board work, trials work or writing manuscripts. So where I'm ever going to find time to paint something, I, I don't know, um, maybe may in 10 years time.
0: All right, well, I, I look forward to your exhibit uh, uh, in, in LA uh, with your, with your uh, artwork. What, as we get closer to wrap up here, you know, you've sort of had the incredible journey in cardiothoracic surgery, you know, spanning continents, spanning coasts. Um, you know, your, your original thesis was on transplant and then you made your name for yourself in, in restorative uh, uh, surgery for mitral valve and tricuspid valve. You're a skilled educator and been involved with the educational process, serving as a program director at one point. Um, and obviously, a mentor and a sponsor. Where are we going as a specialty? Where do you see cardiothoracic surgery uh, ten years, twenty years from now?
1: So, cardiac surgery, I think, is, um, and I, I will speak to that rather than cardiothoracic surgery as as a whole, um, because the drivers of where we are are so so different. It clearly um, the transcatheter space and prevention of cardiovascular disease are both going to impinge hugely um, on what we're doing as professionals. And I think one of the most exciting things for me, um, clinically and sort of academically, has been being involved in the research, um, the trials and the comparative outcomes work that will hopefully drive how, how we deliver care going forward um it's with such a technology driven specialty we've been in a state of maturity where it's just about refining very clearly um, understood procedures for so long that disruptive technology that's now coming through is going to change things i think very very unpredictably and the wonderful thing about the i programs is that we will be training a generation of surgeons that are pluripotential that be as facile with a guide wire as they are with the ATO proline. Um, super specialization is really going to be a, a, a big aspect of that. Um, I don't think that there is um, anything like the c- contraction that people tend to talk about. Um, there's a heck of a lot of pathology out there. There's an awful lot of it that's underrecognized, underdiagnosed, and undertreated. And I think we will be um, operating on people for a very long time to come.
0: Yeah, especially uh, as, you, as this new technology comes in, you, you see disease processes that are related to the new technology and uh, a skilled surgeon is then required to deal with that whole new disease process that we didn't even think about 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely true.
0: Great. Well, Joe, it's always a, a pleasure talking with you. I always learn something new when I talk to you. Uh, real quick question, are you left-handed? Right-handed. You're a, 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 gift, a gifted right-handed artist, yet another rarity. Yeah, so,
1: the left hand, like with piano playing particularly, always needed extra work. It's, it's a slow, lazy hand.
0: So, oh, I'm, I'm sure it works fine. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And I'm really excited to see all the great things uh, you are doing in the city of Los Angeles.
1: Thank you very much, Tom. Really appreciate it.
0: This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, thefaceofctsurgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.